Mr. The mic is on. Can you hear me all right? All right. I'm going to need, I need one worship stand. Can I have that one right there, Tim? So we originally planned for this to be Shepherd Sunday, the staff are on retreat, but we didn't plan on the snow, and we've decided not to do exactly what we were going to do for Shepherd Sunday. Thank you. So we'll do what we had planned for that at a later time. In the meantime, I'm glad to speak to you today. My name is Mark, Mark Liebert. I'm one of the elders here at First Christian, and it's a joy to have you here. Thank you for coming. It, uh, it encourages my heart, and I know everyone else's heart, to see people who say, I don't care what the elements are, I want to worship with God's people and proclaim his name. And that's why you're here. So thank you for that. What I want to do this morning is a little bit different. wasn't expecting to preach until about 7.30 this morning. However, I have a message ready because I'm traveling today to Indiana after the service is over for a memorial service tomorrow morning for Lucy Moeller, Christy Ottinger's mom up in Tipton, Indiana. Many of you know Lucy. I see your heads nodding. You know she passed away on Thursday this week. Of course, David and Christy have been longtime members of the church here, and Lucy would spend six months down here and six months up there, and many of you knew her. All right, how's that? Is that fine? Okay. Lucy had been in the Bible study class I taught for a while, and it must have been a couple years ago. She knew that it wasn't going to be long that she was left here on this earth, and she wanted to have things ready for when she passed on. And she asked if it would be all right if I would speak at her funeral. I've never been asked that before, and certainly not in advance. And I made her promise that it wouldn't be too soon. It was about two years ago. So if you will indulge me, I would like to preach for you what I'm going to preach tomorrow morning. I think it's appropriate, not just because of the content, but because this was, in many senses, Lucy's home church, and certainly David and Christie's home church, and many of you knew her. I know there are lots of children here today with us. I have no problems if your children make noise. If they throw crayons or stray objects, that's fine. For a long time, I spoke in a Mexican church in Chicago. We did not have nursery. It was just understood that the preacher and the singers were louder than the kids. <laughs> so I have no problem with that. So I don't want you to feel inhibited or bad or anything like that. That's fine. We're glad they're with us. We're all worshiping together. Last year, before Lucy died, Christy wrote me an email about this service, the one I'll be giving tomorrow, in which she said, we want this to be a celebration of a life who has finally gotten to see Jesus face to face. This same hope of seeing the face of God has been put into a famous hymn by Carrie Breck. Many of you know it. The chorus of that famous hymn has these words, Face to face I shall behold him far beyond the starry sky. Face to face in all his glory I shall see him by and by. 
This idea of seeing God's face is rooted in the Old Testament, where God himself gave this blessing to Israel. Numbers 6, 22-26. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. But let me ask you, is it realistic that you and I can or will ever be able to see the face of God in all of his majestic, unimaginable glory? Is that a realistic hope? Moses was the first to request that honor. Do you remember? He was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. The greatest of all. The law came through Moses. He was the first redeemer who rescued the people from Israel. He even appeared to Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah. Humanly speaking, in the Old Testament, there was none greater than Moses. None. It said he communed with God as a friend would. I don't claim that. I doubt you do either. Moses communed with God. It was he who asked for the privilege of seeing the glory of God, his face, and he was flatly denied. Exodus 33, 18 through 23. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. The Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back. But my face you must not see. Why was Moses denied? Because he was a sinner. He was impure. Moses was a friend of God. He was made in the image of God. He communed with God, but he was unable to look upon God because of his impurity. Had God shown his actual face, his glory, which is what that represents, to Moses, he would have instantly been destroyed from the absolute perfection he witnessed. That is why Habakkuk 1.13 says of God, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God cannot tolerate wrong or impurity. He can't even look at it. In fact, God is said to dwell in inapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6.16 God who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now consider. Consider the glory that Moses did see. The Israelites, when they saw the reflection on Moses' face were terrified. And Moses hadn't even seen the glory of God. They just saw the reflection on Moses' face, and they were terrified. 
third-hand glory they saw, and they were fearful for their lives. Now, I want you to extrapolate that to what that would mean to look at the very face of God. If they were afraid of the third-hand glory reflected on a mere mortal human. It says in Exodus, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments, in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant, because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron, the high priest, and all the Israelites saw Moses, that his face was radiant, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back, and he spoke. But when Moses finished speaking, he put a veil over his face. They couldn't even handle the glory reflected on Moses' face. And lest you think angels are any different, even angelic beings are not permitted to see the face of God. Angels who have no sin. Seraphim, seraphs, literally means fiery ones or burning ones. That's what their name means. It is their specific job as exalted angelic beings to guard the very throne and presence of God. They are not your average angel. Seraphim are about as high as you can get other than Mark, Michael, the archangel. And Isaiah 6 says this about the seraphim in God's presence. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. This is a vision you understand. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. Now get this. Why do they have six wings? Are they that heavy? No. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So understand this. They have six wings. They only need two to fly. Do you know what the other four serve as a purpose? To shield them from the glory of God. The two that cover their feet indicate that they are creatures in the presence of the uncreated. It's the same reason Moses had to take off his sandals at the presence of the burning bush. He was on holy ground. Feet indicate you're a creature. God has no feet. And they had to cover their feet in humility in the presence of God. And then they had two other wings to cover their eyes, their face. Why? Because even they cannot look directly at the glory of God. And they have no sin at all. Are you beginning to understand what an awesome request it must be to see the very glory and face of God? Do not ask for something lightly. The glory of God. The scriptures make it clear that no one has ever seen God directly. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The one God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, has made him known. We've seen Jesus. He came to earth. We have not seen the glory of the face of Almighty God in heaven. 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. Again, it says it. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You can see God through me, through you, but not the glory of God in heaven. John 6, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, Jesus. He has seen the Father. So I ask you again, can we actually hope to see God face to face in heaven? 
Matthew 5.8 holds out a glimmer of hope. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But who would claim to be pure in heart? I don't. Do you claim to be pure in heart? Hebrews 12.4 says, Those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Do you claim to be holy? Do I claim to be holy? So why do we desperately hang on to this idea and make songs about seeing God's face in all his glory? Because of the cross. That is why. At the cross, an amazing thing happened. Jesus took our sin, our guilt, our shame, our evil, our very wickedness to our core. He took it on himself, and he received in himself the wrath of God that was due to fall on me, on you. And in that exchange, he gave me, he gave you, his perfect holiness, blameless, spotless, purity, and righteousness. It's a transfer, you must understand, it is a transfer that takes place in the mind of God legally. And when we repent of our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ, it is given to us, imputed as the word theologians use. It is credited to our account. His perfect righteousness. Theologians call this the great exchange. Look it up on the internet sometime. The great exchange. It's based on these Bible passages. I'll read three to you today in succession. If you want these afterwards, I'll give them to you. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin. I'll put the pronouns in, I'll exchange them. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That is a verse everyone should memorize. This righteousness, next verse, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Next verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, declared righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What we're talking about here are legal transactions that God says are so. And they require faith. But God declares it to be so. Because of the great exchange that took place at the cross, a Christian is acceptable to God. But not just acceptable. They are clothed in the very righteous robes that Jesus Christ wears. Because of the cross, in God's eyes, a Christian becomes holy and blameless. As if God were looking at his very son when he sees you and me. Consider these promises of scripture. 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. 
Colossians 1.22. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Jude 1.24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Do you see those words before him or in his sight? That's the key. No one's playing games here. No one is pretending that I actually am holy or that you actually are holy. We're not. We know how we live. But it's in his sight, the way he regards us, the way he looks at us. We understand this concept. Have you ever used the phrase, they can do no wrong in so-and-so's eyes? Oh, absolutely we do. The grandmother, my wife's mom, never sees any wrong in any of my children or Molly. None. They are wonderful grandkids. Why is that? She's a grandma. <laughs> I'm sure there's truth there, too. We're familiar with that concept. Newlyweds? How many of you, in your premarital counseling or the days before you were married, you thought that spouse-to-be that spouse was perfect? I did. I'm sure Beth Ann thought that about, well, I can't say that. <laughs> I can't say that. In your eyes, you regard people a certain way. We understand that concept. God is saying that's how he regards his children, because of his son. Not because of his children, because of his son. His is the only true righteousness. His is the only true purity. But it's yours and it's mine by faith because of the cross. That is an amazing concept, my friends. That means when you get up every morning, you do not clean yourself up to be acceptable to God. You do not have a good string of obeying God so that you can approach him later on that day. No. You approach him with boldness, Hebrews says. Because in his eyes, you are already holy and righteous because of his son. That'll change your life. That will change your life. Now, when a Christian dies, they don't enter into the presence of God as an impure sinner. At the moment they enter into eternity, the last vestiges of their sin are removed forever. They are from that moment on pure in heart. We are, in God's eyes, righteous and blameless now. We're not in practice, though, are we? But we are in his mind, in the way he views us. But one day when we get to heaven, we will both be that way in his mind and in practicality, because all sin will be removed forever. And you will stand in heaven, pure and blameless, because of, say it, who? Don't ever be confused on because of why. That's why Hebrews 12.23 says, You've come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God himself who's the judge over all things. Now listen to this. You've come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. Perfect in heaven. My friends, therein lies our hope for seeing the face of God. That is why the scriptures do clearly teach, and I withheld these verses on purpose, 
that you will see the face and the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, say it, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. 1 John 3, 2, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Psalm 17, 15, David even knew this in the Old Testament. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And most importantly, the last book, last chapter of the entire Bible, one of the last thoughts God wanted to leave with his people, Revelation chapter 22, Scott preached on it a few weeks ago, talking about the new Jerusalem, our home. No longer will there be anything there accursed. The curse is gone. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. One writer, John MacArthur, put it this way, In heaven, since we will be free from sin, we will see God's glory unveiled in its fullness. That will be a more pleasing, spectacular sight than anything we have known or could ever imagine on earth. No mere earthly pleasure can even begin to measure up to the privilege and the ecstasy of an unhindered view of the glory of God. Think of the greatest thing you've ever seen on earth. I've been to the Grand Canyon. I've seen the Rocky Mountains. I've seen a newborn baby. What is it that you've seen that's the most spectacular thing? Think of it. It's different for each one of us. It could be the mountains covered with snow. It pales in comparison. It doesn't even measure on the scale of what it will be like to see the very face of God. We often ask, and our kids ask this, what will we do in heaven for eternity? I'm going to be bored out of my mind. Will there be football? Will there be nachos? Will there be cats? I don't know. You won't care. You hear me? You will not care. Do you think for a minute you'll be able to take your eyes off of the glory of the face of God because you're bored? I don't know what we'll do. God knows. His plan is perfect. But I'm not going to be looking around for something else to fill my time. That's silly. We have no idea what the full glory of the face of God is like. But it will blow you away. Anything in this earth that you see as pleasure or that fills you with ecstasy or joy is a taste, a glimmer of what it will be to be in the presence of God. We're just going to have to take that by faith because none of us has been there. But Lucy's there now. And you have loved ones that are there now. We rejoice because Lucy is in the very presence of God, beholding him face to face right now. She's gone before us. She's been presented to God as holy through the blood of Christ, her Redeemer. He has made her fit to gaze into the undiluted, overwhelming, all-consuming, unbelievable, incomprehensible glory of the face of God. She is worshiping him as he is and is experiencing full joy and true satisfaction at last. For this we were created. What about you? And I'm going to ask this tomorrow at a funeral. You never know who comes. What about you? 
Should your life suddenly end today, would you be confident of receiving the same welcome by God that Lucy is enjoying right now? Would you? Perhaps you're thinking, I'm glad Lucy found meaning in life that worked for her, but that Jesus stuff isn't for me. I have friends at work that say that. I'm glad you found meaning and purpose. It works for you. I'm happy for you. As if it's a grocery store and we pick what we want. I'm here to warn you that a response like that won't work. Either the Bible's true or it isn't. It may be wrong, but I think it's also right. But there's no middle ground. It's either wrong or right. It's not a matter of perspective, opinion, or experience. Some will argue it's how you interpret the Bible. You heard that before? Which Bible? How do you interpret the Bible? Really? As if verses like this are hard to understand, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It's either right or it's wrong, but you can't say, I don't know how to interpret that. Or Acts 4.12 and Peter's preaching, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You can accept it or you reject it. But don't say it's a matter of interpretation. Today, we can ignore the words of Scripture. We can even disregard the witness of a life like Lucy's. But there's no middle ground. Either it's true or it's false. And I know that if Lucy were here today and she would tell you one thing, it would be to take seriously the words of Scripture before it's too late for you. Are you ready to meet your Maker? Are you ready to meet your Maker? Please talk to me or an elder or anyone else in the church afterwards if you need to talk about these things. Don't let another day go by. Lucy would agree with these words Fanny Crosby wrote many years ago. And with this, I'll close. When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side. And his smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates of the city in a robe of spotless white, he will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages, I shall mingle with delight. But I long to meet my Savior first of all. And remember, Fanny Crosby was blind. Can you imagine the very first sight she ever sees in her life? Is the glory of the face of God. Are you ready? Are you longing? Do you look forward to seeing the face of God? Let's close in prayer. Father, I... I preach words I don't even fully understand. But I preach it because it's true in Scripture. You are more awesome than we can possibly imagine. You are the only one truly deserving of the term awesome. And I'm grateful that you have given an incredible promise that even the angels don't get. And that is to see you in all your glory face to face. We worship you today because of our Savior, Jesus. And we are not deceived into thinking this is some privilege we have earned 
but that it's only because of Him and His righteousness. And so today we give you glory and praise and thanks. In the name of our Savior. Amen. If you need to pray, please come forward. There's elders.